Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Warm Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. All right, good morning. If you want to go ahead and open up to John chapter 20, I'll meet you there here in just a minute. John chapter 20. Around the time of Jesus's life and um, subsequent years after that, really throughout the time of the New Testament, you have a number of different historians that are writing secularly. They're not, they're not writing um, about Christ. They're not really writing about Christianity to the, for the most part. Now you have some that spoke about Christianity because of the quote-unquote problems that Christianity is causing in the Roman Empire, like, well, you know, those Christians are just a bunch of bunch of cannibals because they eat of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ on Sundays. Well, you know, they're practicing incest because they marry their brothers and sisters. You see the problems here? People didn't really understand what Christianity was. But you have some, some historians that are writing about us because of that. But... In addition to that, you have historians writing in the first century about Rome, just just Rome in general. And then the Romans had an infatuation with the Greeks. Most of the Roman culture was actually, um, by this time, kind of an amalgamation of Greek religion and Greek culture. They took the Greek, the pagan religions of the Greeks and they turned the names into um, other names and so... They had their own mythology, but it was basically the same as Greek mythology. They had the same Greek language. And so they based their society so heavily upon Greek culture that most of the historians in the first and second century of of Rome, uh, the Roman Empire, are recording things that happened in the Greek Empire. And around that time, uh, somewhere around the 60s, so this is right in the middle of the ministry of Paul and the um, evangelistic efforts of Paul the Apostle. Around that time, you had this guy named Plutarch. Plutarch was a historian. He's a Greek historian. He wrote basically two main um, books called The Lives of the Greeks and Romans or Plutarch's Lives and then this Moralia. And what Plutarch did was, this is, this is pretty interesting at least to me, Plutarch would take stories from Greek in Roman history, actual truthful stories. He's one of those historians in the Roman Empire that you can actually trust to a pretty good degree. Back then, historians weren't so much interested in the truth of history as they were of making Rome and Greece look really good in history. So uh, if you've heard of or if you've seen the movie 300 and the Greeks versus the Persians, uh, chances are Leonidas had a little bit more than 300 people, and it didn't really work out that way as in the movie and in the in the story, but it makes Greek look really good, doesn't it? Even though they lost, it, I mean, it looks really, really good. And so 
Plutarch's one of those you can kind of trust. Well, anyways, he's writing about uh, this man named Lucullus, who is a, a Roman who's going to attack um, the basically the last known piece of the world that hadn't been overcome by Roman world. Okay, so Plutarch's writing this, and he says this. The first messenger that gave notice of Lucullus' coming, so Tigranus is the guy who he's attacking. Lucullus is the Roman, okay? The first messenger that gave notice of Lucullus' coming was so far from pleasing Tigranus that he had his head cut off for his pains. No man dared to bring further information without any inf- intelligence at all. Tigranus sat while war was already blazing around him, giving ear only to those who flattered him. And there came the statement that we use all the time. If I'm going to tell Rebecca something that she's not going to like, if I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to like, what's the statement I'm going to use? Don't shoot the messenger, right? Don't shoot the messenger. It comes from Plutarch's lives. This man, Tigranus, is a, a official in a province far, far removed from the city of Rome and the Roman uh, seat. And this man named Lucullus is, is bearing down on him. A messenger comes to tell Tigranus, listen, this isn't going to look so well for you. Uh, he's coming. He's got a lot of people. And Tigranus was so happy with that that he killed him. Um, then no one was really willing to say anything else. Now, the similarities between that and what happened earlier in the first century with the death of Jesus are pretty remarkable to me. I mean, you think about Jesus, the messenger, comes to bring the message of salvation. We'll get to all this here in just a minute. But he comes to bring the message of salvation to mankind. And the Romans like it so much and the, Greek, the, the Jews like it so much that they kill them. And instead of doing what all of Tigranus' people did, which was saying, okay, if you're going to kill the messenger, I'm not going to tell you anything anymore. You're just on your own. Instead of doing that, the Christians continuously go back to the Roman and Jews, the Romans and Jews, right? So Paul makes it his point in the first part of his ministry that all he does is preach to Jews, even though by the time that Paul is converted in Acts 9, and by the time he gets back from Arabia three years later, by the time Paul's back, after learning from Jesus in the wilderness, after being instructed and becoming an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the time he comes back, Gentiles are already accepted. Acts 10 has happened, Cornelius has been baptized, and the conversations that came after him, it seems as though Acts 15 and the, the council that the Christians get together in Jerusalem to try to figure out what God is saying about Gentiles, that's all happened while Paul's been off. But when Paul comes back, the first thing he does, every time he gets to a city, is where does he go? The synagogue, right? Any city that has more than 10 Jewish families... And 10 Jewish men would have a synagogue. And so he goes and he tries to preach to the Jews. Even Peter, even after going to Cornelius and being the one who baptizes Cornelius, they continue to go to the Jews first. They didn't do what Tigranus' people did. But in John chapter 20, we have the reason why. Okay, so John chapter 20, verse number 19. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, Okay, let's pause for just a second 
and go back in Scripture to try to figure out what day he's talking about, okay? On the evening of that day, look up at John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she, went, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. She, they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord. So Mary goes to the tomb in order to see Jesus. She's going to go and take care of his body. She's going to put some fragrances on his body. It's something that they used to do because... Well, it doesn't really smell all that great. And so they would put fragrances and they would take care of the body for days and days afterwards. The Jews had a, had a, a myth, a story that the soul of the person would stick around the body. Not in the body, but around the body for three days. Okay, And so during those three days, the Jews would take care of that body as kind of a way to take care of the soul that had left that body. So Mary goes to do just that. She's going to take care of the body of Jesus. She gets there. She sees that he's not there. She looks up. She sees two angels. The angels say, what are you looking for? What are you weeping for? And she says, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said, Sir, if, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She, re- she recognizes him. She doesn't know who he is. I don't know why that is. Why do people keep seeing Jesus after he's resurrected, but they don't know who he is? Even followers of Jesus, even close followers of Jesus like Mary. I mean, you have the men on the road to, to Emmaus uh, that, that see him and don't recognize that he's him, and, but they've met him before. But Mary should know this guy, right? Mary should remember Jesus. It's only been three days since she saw him last. She doesn't recognize him, but he says, Mary, and it immediately clicks. She turns around and says, Rabbi, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brother's. And say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So now, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the day where the culminating act of salvation for all mankind has finally happened, the day when... Now, for all of eternity, for the rest of eternity, man can be with God. Before this, they're just waiting for this time to happen. Now, it's official. Jesus has been resurrected. He talks to her about the resurrection. He tells her what's going to happen. That I, I I have resurrected, but I haven't ascended. I'm going to ascend to my God and to your God. And you need to go and tell all the other disciples. If you were there... That would be pretty exciting, wouldn't it? I mean, Jesus died three days ago, and we've been terrified since then. But now, he's back. Now, everything he told us was going to happen actually is happening. I would be pretty excited. But they, on the other hand, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, which is a Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, 
Why are they in this house with the door locked, doors locked? Because they're scared of the Jews. Listen, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm speaking in retrospect here, knowing the rest of the story. So bear in mind that this may, this may change at any moment. I, I love when people say, if I was there, I'd do this. Well, you don't exactly know that, you know. I, 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 this, is, this is just an illustration, okay? Last night, a pretty big football game happened, if y'all didn't notice. And there were two plays, one on each side. One on each side, for Alabama and for Georgia, that the announcers, okay, the announcers were just railing on those coaches. Why would you ever do that? Why would you fake a punt at that moment? Why would you call that play at that moment? They're just getting on to Nick Saban and to Kirby Smart. And the whole time I'm thinking, I don't see y'all making millions of dollars coaching football teams. Y'all just need to leave them alone, let them do their job. Anyway, they're doing a good job. Leave them alone. But... If I'm there, here's what I think I would do. I'd be pretty excited. If, I, if I've been following Jesus for years now, and now he's resurrected, and I know he's resurrected, I'm not going to be all that scared. At least I think I'm not going to be all that scared. And I don't really know. I mean, these disciples were there, boots on the ground, so I'm not going to, to bash them for that. But they're, they're terrified. Even though they know the truth, even though they, they have reason to be exuberant, they're scared to death. And so they've locked themselves in a room because they're scared that the Jews are going to find them. That just, that just goes to show you, even though you know what's right, sometimes it's scared to do it. So anyways, Jesus came, verse number 19, and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is another one of those passages where we focus on the last thing Jesus said and we don't give any credence or any thought to what he said before that and we end up putting ourselves in a bad situation in that instance. So, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Let's break some of these phrases down and just get some application. Not, not a whole lot this morning, but just, just a little bit of application from this. They have shot the messenger, as it were. Jesus has come. The Jews didn't like it just like Tigranus did back in the day. And so they, they, they killed Jesus. Now, he's come back from the dead, and he says these words, Peace be with you. Verse number 19. That's our first point. Peace be with you. This idea of peace is pretty common in New Testament uh, Christianity. It's, it's pretty common really throughout the Bible, but especially in the New Testament. You have passages like Luke chapter 2, in verse 14, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible here. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. That's the, that's the, the go-to verse this time of year, right? Well, it's true. The coming of Jesus Christ gave peace. The, the, the birth of Jesus Christ was the, was the bringing of a new era in mankind's history where now we actually have some hope. 
For the last 400 years, people haven't had any hope. For the last 400 years, God hadn't spoken to anybody. It's called the, the years of silence. We call it the intertestament period. To the Jews, it was terrifying. For thousands of years, God has spoken to mankind through his prophets, Hebrews says. In all these different ways, through visions and through, through actual audible voices, through, um, even though the, the sound of God is not necessarily a sound, y'all, that were here yesterday. I'm just kidding. Anyways, I lost a game yesterday, and I'm still a little bitter about it, okay? Anyways, so, he's spoken to mankind for thousands of years in all these different ways, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, after they go into captivity, and they come back, and they rebuild the city, and they rebuild the walls, and they have the, the Old Testament way of worship established. You'd think that that's when God is going to speak the most because now he's happy that they've done all this. He's, he's encouraging them. But when they finish that, that's when he goes silent. For 400 years, God does not speak to mankind in any meaningful way outside of providence. And so we have this intertestament period and all these different ruling factions come in the persians are in charge and then the greeks come in and then this this small group of misfits in italy rise up called the romans and then they overtake the entire world and judaism is is corrupted again like it always has been just in different ways this time and then jesus comes on the scene and now he's being born and so luke 2 verse 14 says that peace on earth to the people that he favors has come. Luke chapter 7, verse 50. And he said to the woman, Your faith was, has saved you. Go in peace. So you have peace being brought when Jesus is born. You have peace coming upon people when he, when he saves them. And in Luke chapter 7 specifically, it's talking about the physical and the spiritual. You have this peace that comes over people. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 13. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. He wants his disciples to be a conduit of peace in the world. Now, Jesus didn't just come to bring peace and then when he left, that would be the end of it. He, he left his disciples and specifically Matthew chapter 10. When he's sending them out in groups of two, he's telling them, I want you to be a conduit for peace amongst the people that you're going to speak to. And if, and if they don't want to listen to you, you, you just keep that peace. What does that mean? I can't give you peace, Forrest. I can encourage you. I can talk to you. And I can, I can be your friend. Is that what he's talking about? Yeah, that's exactly what he's talking about. All right. John chapter 14, verse 27. I, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's sending the Comforter. John 14 is all about the Comforter, which is also called the Holy Spirit. It's the part of the Godhead that comes after Jesus is gone, and he's going to stay. He's going to give him miraculous powers, yeah, and he's going to be, a, be a, a way that they can convert the world and establish the world, yes. But, but more specifically, Jesus leaves the Comforter, leaves the Spirit, leaves the Holy Spirit, because the people are going to need it. Because there's going to come a time when they're terrified again. In John 20, they're already terrified. But later on, they're, they're going to be, they're going to need some, they're going to need some reminder that all this is okay. 
This idea of peace comes over and over in the New Testament. It comes when Jesus is born. It comes when he's ministering to people. It comes when his disciples are ministering to people. It comes, <clears throat> it comes when he leaves at the Holy Spirit. Romans 1 and verse 7. To all those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So after he's gone and the Comforter comes, then Paul says, Romans 1, 7, that people should have peace because of what he was going to write. And specifically in Romans, he's talking about the fact that we're saved. That we have the ability to be one with God again through faith. The same type of faith that Abraham had. Not in the same actions, but the same type of unending, I'll do whatever you ask type of faith that Abraham had. So, this concept of peace. He says, I want you to have peace. Verse 19. Then verse 20, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. That's our second topic for this morning. He breathed on them. Okay, there's different ways that God breathes on people in the Bible. When you have Genesis chapter 1, right? When God creates mankind, specifically Genesis 2-7 says it. But when God is creating mankind, he breathes into them the breath of life, right? You remember that? You remember that verse? Shake your head like this. Y'all stay up too late last night? All right. So... He breathes on them the breath of life. Well, that's not the kind of breathing that Jesus is doing because these people are what? They're already alive, right? So he's not breathing to them the breath of life. They're already alive, okay? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that the Bible is the breath of life, the breath of God, that, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It gives, it's come by inspiration, the word there is rhema, which means breath. So the, the book that you have in your hands, your Bible, is the breath of God. It's the life-giving source of God. Y'all ever tried to hold your breath for a really, really long time? We used to do it in college when we were, um, when we were practicing for marching band and things. And uh, have y'all ever... Some of you who run may have experienced this. I am allergic to running, so um, I've never experienced it in that way. But, yeah, if I run, um, I have an allergic reaction. It's called a heart attack. Anyways, so um, there we go. Now y'all are awake. Okay, so we used to, uh, we used to breathe in and breathe out, and, and I forget the name of the exercise, but eventually you get that runner's high where you're kind of floating. You don't really know that you, you, you don't really feel like you're standing still anymore and that's how we would march a, 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 an entire show because then you know you don't get tired when you're in that mode right so we would put ourselves into that mode and then we'd march the whole show so we didn't get tired but anyways have y'all ever tried to y'all ever tried to hold your breath for a really long time it's it's pretty hard right i used to be able to hold my breath for for you know three four minutes something like that now I can hold it for three, four seconds. Um, I'm not in the same kind of breathing shape as I was in, in college, but 
Breath is the life-giving thing that we have. We have our blood that's in our body, right? But the thing that we have to have, that we have to take in in order to breathe, or in order to live, is breath. We have to take in air, right? And so it's the breath of God. The scripture is the breath of God. It is breathed out. It's the thing that, that comes from deep within God and gives the ability for life for everyone else. Well, that's not what he's talking about in, Genesis, in John chapter 20 because they don't have the Bible yet when he gets done. And if that's the case, if the Bible is the breath of God and he's breathing into them and that means they're getting the Bible, then what happens when it still takes about 100 years for the Bible to finish? So that's not what he's talking about. I believe what he's doing is he's reminding them of what happened in Genesis chapter 2. He's reminding them of what happened. In, it would happen when the Bible was completed. That he's, he's giving them an, an illustration. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse number 5, it says this, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, the valley of dry bones in Exodus, or Ezekiel chapter 37. Thus says the Lord God to, the, uh, to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. That is a statement in prophecy of what's going to happen when the New Testament times occur. He's going to breathe life back into people. He's not giving them life like he did in Genesis 2. He's not giving them the Bible like he would in, in, and talks about in 2 Timothy. What he's doing is he's, he's giving them a new life. This is the moment that the apostles, the disciples rather... The disciples have this new life in Christ. And it's interesting to me that in Acts chapter 2, you have, an you, have a, you have an odd thing that happens. Acts chapter 1, they're all gathered together in the upper room. And they're singing and they're praying and they're, they're waiting for what Jesus would, said would happen to happen. And the Holy Spirit comes on them. Same thing he told them would happen in John chapter 14. The Holy Spirit comes on them. And then they go out and they start preaching these sermons. And the one we have recorded is Peter's sermon on Pentecost. When he, he says, men and brethren, we're not drunk like you say we are. It's the third hour. It's, it's 9 a.m. We're not drunk. This is what was foretold of the prophet Joel, quoting from Joel chapter 2, that your sons and daughters will dream dreams, your old men will see visions, and that you will have the, the, he calls it the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and verse 38. And he preaches this sermon, and people at the end, verse 37, say, well, what are we going to do? What should we do? And he says, rise, be baptized, right? Repent and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And, and then, Acts 2, 38, and then... If you do this, if you repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. You'll get to do the same thing we are able to do, these miracles. But then it says that the people that did that, the people that obeyed the gospel, were added to them. And so you have this question, when were they baptized? They weren't. Their new life began in John chapter 20 in a different way than ours did. 
the apostles' new life began in a room with the door locked and Jesus Christ breathing on them. The apostles weren't baptized the way we are. They, they, were, they were already Christians before Jesus had ever ascended into heaven. Their, their new life began in a different way. Does that mean that we can say that our life begins in a different way? No. No, because they're different than us. Okay, I think some, sometimes we have a problem when we say, when we try, to, we try to take all of the characteristics and the actions of the apostles and we say that that's how we should live. Because the fact is, they're, they're a little different than us. I mean, I wish that I had the ability to, if a person didn't listen to what I told them about Jesus Christ, that I could strike them blind immediately. There's a couple people I would strike blind from a distance. Like right now. If I had that opportunity, just there, there you go. That'll teach them a lesson. Anyways, that's why I don't have that. God knows that I'm, I don't have the capability to withhold that. Anyways, and it doesn't happen anymore to begin with. But this is the moment that these people are saved from their sins. Jesus breathes on them. Their new life has begun. Exodus or Ezekiel chapter 37, 5 is, is fulfilled. And they, he has breathed new life into them. Now they're, now they're Christians. And then you come to this interesting verse, verse number 23. John chapter 20, verse 23. Receive the Spirit. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What? Jesus, you know that we're mankind, right? We don't have that ability. And, and you can't give us that ability because we, we don't have what it takes to have that ability. That's what the end of the book of Job is. He asks all these questions of God and God says, you don't have what it takes to be me. You, can't, you don't have what it takes to still have to send people to torment even though you love them and you sent Jesus Christ to die for them and you gave them everything that they could ever need and you still have to send it because they didn't, they didn't believe you. You don't have what it takes, Job, to be me. Uh, why, why then does, does Jesus say that whatever they do, if they forgive someone, their sins are forgiven them. If they withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. These people, these disciples don't have that authority. And you never see them exercising authority like that in the, the book of Acts. You never see an apostle saying, you know what? There's no way you can be saved because I'm, I'm, I'm going to withhold salvation from you. So what does this mean? I believe it's the same thing as in Matthew chapter 16. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth. I love, I love the Christian Standard Bible here. Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. That's the actual translation. That's the, that's the best translation of that phrase. Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. You're not doing... The disciples weren't just coming up with it on the fly. In Acts 15, when they have the question about the... The Gentiles, they have to get together to make a decision. Not a decision that's binding. Their decision is trying to figure out what God has said about this. They're not coming up with new legislation and new, God, new laws for Christians to follow. In Acts 15, they're trying to figure out what God means. It's a Bible study. 
if, if we had a question, say if we wanted to do something, I don't know, if we wanted to, uh, well, let's just leave it at that. If we wanted to do something, can't think of an illustration right now. If we wanted to do something and we didn't know if it was, if it was scriptural or not, what would we do? Would we just go ahead and do it because we just, you know, hey, we think it's a good idea. No. We'd have a Bible study about it, right? We'd dig deep into the scriptures and try to figure out what God has said about it and whether or not it's authorized because we're commanded, Colossians 3.17, to do everything in the name of Jesus Christ or by his authority. So if we do something, we want it to be by the authority of Jesus Christ. If we want to do something and we don't know whether or not Jesus has said we can do it, then we're going to go and we're going to have a Bible study and try to figure it out. And in Matthew 16 and now in John chapter 20, what Jesus is saying is, you're not speaking on your own accord. You're speaking on my behalf. And so whatever you do, if you bind something on earth, it's already been bound in heaven before you ever did it. If you lose something on earth, it's already been loosed in heaven before you ever did it. John chapter 20, if you forgive sins, they'll be forgiven. Because you're going to be an extension, a conduit of the peace of God. You have this new life. And now you are an extension of Jesus Christ. And so you're not going to do anything that I wouldn't do. Because you're going to have the comforter. You're going to have the Holy Spirit. Now we have the Bible to do the same thing. And so that's when he says, if you, if you forgive it, sins of any, they're already forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it's already withheld. Romans 8 and verse 9 says, You, who, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of the sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. See, now there's, now there's this, this link between us and Christ. If you're a Christian, there's this link between you and Christ. And now whatever you do, Christ is doing. That, that brings a different picture in when we get tempted, doesn't it? That now I'm a Christian. I, I'm not just an ambassador of Christ. I am an extension of Jesus Christ. And if I give in to that temptation, I don't want Jesus to have to deal with that. And he's telling his disciples that they're sent just like he was sent. Verse number 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So now they're extensions of Jesus. Now they have the new life. Now they are, they are there to be a conduit of Jesus Christ and his principles to all the world because he was a conduit of the principles of God. And he came to bring the word of God and now he's passed it on to his disciples. And then he's going to pass it on to us through his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20 and in Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16. So every single one of us is sent the same way they were. Our beginning is a little different, right? No one has ever had Jesus breathe on you 
Okay, here's a, here's a question. Nope, not going to ask that question. Okay, anyways, let's go on. Um, sometimes I have questions pop into my head, and then I think no one else needs to hear that question. Okay, let's move on. So, here's the, here's the thing. Over the next month, we're going to study the idea of being sent. That, that you and I are extensions of Jesus Christ. And then in 2019, a good portion of everything that I preach and teach on, and the topics for our events, like our gospel meeting, and we're going to have the, the Fishers of Men course. By the way, if you've never heard about Fishers of Men, it's a, it's a weekly course that lasts 12 hours, 12 weeks, sorry, February 7th through April. Every Thursday, we're going to train each other and be trained by a good friend of mine, Timothy Wilkes Sr. <laughs> this is funny. Timothy Wilkes Sr., Tim, w- Tim Wilkes, named his son 2 Timothy. And then his son, 2 Timothy, named his son Titus. And I'm just waiting. Titus is about five years old now. I'm just waiting until Titus grows up and then he realizes he has to name his son Philemon. Anyways, um... That's an awkward one. Anyways, it's not bad. It's just I've never heard. I've never met anybody named Philemon before. Um, We're going to go through training on evangelism. We're going to have gospel meeting on evangelism and and be focusing on spreading the gospel and being a conduit of Jesus Christ to the community. We're going to everything that we do in 2019 is going to focus around that. And so this month we're studying that. But here's the catch. If we are extensions of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says this, if you are, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That verse is not talking about whether or not you should eat that extra piece of pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving. It's much more than that. And we trivialize it when we come down and we say that 1 Corinthians 6 says that you should take care of your temple. Yeah, that's true. But we trivialize the meaning of the entire idea of John chapter 20, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 8. All these passages that talk about specifically about the fact that you and I, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are extensions of him. We are his temple. He lives in us. Not literally, but figuratively. And so that changes your outlook when you're tempted. It changes your outlook when you know what you should be doing and you don't do it, James 5 says. If you know to do something that's good and you do not do it, it's sin. It changes your whole outlook on life when you realize that now I am part of Jesus Christ. That I'm an extension of him. That the way people see him is because of the way they see me. You want to know why so many people don't understand Jesus Christ today? It's because we've done a bad job acting like him. If you want to become part of Christ today, we're going to stand and sing a psalm of encouragement for you. And you can do that through baptism because the way that these people had their new life begin in John 20 is not the same as the way that we have our new life begin. Our new life begins at baptism, Romans 6, 1 through 3, and Galatians 3, verse 27. But let me ask you this. 
you are a Christian, have you been an example of Jesus Christ? Have you been a conduit of the peace of Christ? Have you been, have you been some, someone that when someone sees you, they get a good idea of what Christ is? Or do they misunderstand Jesus Christ because they've been looking at you too long? If so, it's time to repent. Maybe that's not a public thing that you need to take care of. Maybe it's a private thing. But if you need public sins, uh, forgiveness, then we're willing to do that. We're willing to pray for you and help you and encourage you in whatever way that we can. And you can let us know while we stand and while we sing this song of encouragement.